0: episode 210 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast topic this week, we'll be exploring designing trust in human-robot relationships. So more so than with many other technologies, robots Seem to require a level of trust in order to interact with human beings. Whether you're talking about robots on the factory floor, uh, robots that could be potentially driving our cars, uh, or robots who might be caregivers for our elders, uh, either now or or in the future. And is
1: is robot the right term, or is it artificial intelligence? Like, what are we're not just talking about a thing that looks like a being, right? We're talking. Some of it is just software in a certain way. Is that right? I want to make sure we're talking about the same thing.
0: Right. I'm I'm thinking uh, about there being a physical instantiation of of the uh, the robot here. So in, in that case, the the automobile that is a self-driving car would qualify that way. Uh, similarly, a, a a robot service for healthcare would be the same, although they might look drastically different. And then on the factory floor, of course, a robot could pretty much look like anything at all. Uh, However, there's a physical and a software application level. So is is our computer a robot? Is our smartphone a robot? I would say no by, you know, the parameters of this particular definition. Although I'm sure we could draw those lines, you know, wherever we like. I think I would draw the line somewhere other than where you're drawing it, but I think I know what you're going for, and I'm on board, brother, let's do this. Okay, so there's some interesting fodder in in a recent article from The Guardian, uh, and they were generous enough to provide us with some audio narrative of that. So I wanted to play a couple of those uh, of those audio pieces so we, so we could get to know this Guardian writer's opinion on on this very topic.
2: I'm always amazed at people who tell me they would never trust a driverless car to take them somewhere, but then happily get into a car driven by a teenager. Talk about preferring the devil you know. Driverless vehicles are likely to be much safer than those driven by humans. The safety differential is so large that insurance companies are already looking at alternative business models to make up for the fact that premiums will likely plummet once robots are driving us everywhere. The barriers to our transition to driverless vehicles and to other forms of robot intervention into our daily lives, then, are not just technical but social, political and psychological. Trust will be a huge issue, and you don't have to think too hard to see why
0: so i I enjoyed his take on it just framing of the of the problem of of trust with our robot companions our robot overlords our, our robot drivers call them what you want I think it's it's interesting that I mean for me part of it has to do with with the physical presence of the the robot being next to me you know I can imagine that it must be very frightening to work you know side by side with a machine that you know if it uh, behaves in the wrong way could take your head off with one of its one of its arms and certainly there are a series of Heuristics that are required around robot behavior on the factory floor simply because they can be so dangerous and there's no there's no soft parts, or, or at least most of the time there aren't you know soft parts. Like if a human being by mistake knocked into, you, you're you're not likely to suffer broken bones as a result if you're just working next to each other. But there's this, you know, same scenario with automated car driving. Certainly, you're in this piece of metal and plastic hurtling along the highway at, you know, if you're on the Mass Pike, then you're doing 70 or 80 miles an hour. Um, and leaving those decisions to this other, this piece of software, or what have you, uh, does require that there be a level of trust built in. And some of that's going to happen over time as we see more automated cars, more self-driving cars, see more robots in factories, but it appears to me that there's, there's a lot of service design work to be done in order for, for us to start down this path to having trust with robot services.
1: Yeah, certainly trust is a big part of it. I think understanding and control are big parts of it too. So if I'm driving in the passenger seat and my teenage Hormone ramped up son is driving. Um, I, I believe that it is mathematically more dangerous for that as opposed to a driverless car. Like, I would accept that on its face. However, I have an illusion of control where I can say, Look out. I can grab the wheel. I can A, see the trouble coming before it comes, and B, physically intercede in the situation to impact it. Now, If we're hurtling down the mass pike at a high rate of speed, that is truly an illusion of control. It's highly unlikely anything I could do could could overcome a calamitous situation. But I think that I could. I feel the comfort level of, I understand this. I can physically impact this. When we're in the driverless car, stuff is just going to happen. The car is going to do things and participate in ways we don't understand. They don't map to... Driving as we know it. I mean, look, you know, the, taking driverless cars, you know, through to the logical conclusion, you're not going to have steering wheels. You're not going to have the the tropes of of driving. They aren't going to be necessary. The machine can move itself. So suddenly, you're in a bubble of a certain kind that is is moving and conveying and making decisions around the road and doing or not doing, and that takes away our ability to sort of physically map what is going on and feel like we understand it, feel like we have control over it. Uh, So I totally get why we're cool with the teenager there, but we're more nervous with with the machine there. And taking it from a different perspective, machines don't have a great track record. Machines are 12 o'clock blinking on the screen. Machines are blue screens. Machines are viruses. Like, we do not have a strong track record of computing devices just working. And if now the computing device isn't just expected to us up a website, if the computing device is expected to keep us safe hurtling down the road at, at a high speed, that's a big leap, actually, from the reliability level that technology in the form of computing devices has given us to this point. So, again, while I certainly theoretically believe that it's true that when everything's functioning properly, the driverless car is safer then the driver car, you know, <laughs> viruses, blue screen, hello, right? I mean, these things are real. These things happen. And that doesn't even consider the fact when I'm driving the car, you know, certainly I'm part of a bigger network of people being on the road, but I can control my one little thing. The driverless car, presumably that technology is going to go in a direction where it's all part of one integrated system. And so now you're not just worried about fails at the local level of the car, you're worried about fails at the more global level of the whole system that impact you in the car in negative ways. So uh, you know, I will embrace and go with the driverless car. I will feel weird and nervous about it for some period of time until it becomes normal and fine. And the reasons I'll feel weird and, about it is not because I doubt the fact it's safer. I'll take for granted it probably is safer. But there's so much evidence that machines don't always work right and I'm, I'm not able to fully understand and map WTF is going on compared to if I was driving the car myself.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think another, you know, just to, to build off what you were saying, I, I think understanding the wide variety of failure modes that are possible with, you know, conventional cars, that gives us a, uh, a degree of comfort uh, because in many of those scenarios, as you pointed out, the fail-safe is us, right? right? It defaults to our knowledge of these variety of scenarios. Uh, you know, you, you popped a tire, your car broke down in another way, a driver swerves in front of you, you know, it's raining out and the car is, is uh, skidding a little bit. Like, each of these areas where there, there's potential failure, at, at least in, as an experienced driver, will have some inkling of what to do. Now, when we're talking about sort of the early adoption curve here, there's going to be plenty of failure modes where you have absolutely no idea what to do. Should I stick my foot out and try to cause the car to slow down like Fred Flintstone? Like, if <laughs> I mean, like, how do you like what are the proper reactions to a self-driving car failing in, in one way or the other? You know, and these things might become embedded in us as we're, you know, more and more, you know, get get used to being driven around by by a robot. But in addition to maybe misunderstanding or or not not really understanding how things work, we also don't have a lot of experiences to draw on that would also provide some some confidence, uh, uh, some level of confidence, anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's also an issue of trust at sort of the corporate level, right? So, uh, you know, Tesla automobiles have had self-driving abilities in them for some period of time now. I think we've talked about before on the show how it requires, I don't know if requires is the technically correct word, but they say, hey, you need to keep your hands on the wheel and your foot on the brake because even though the car is doing its thing, you may need to kind of save the car basically. And multiple people have died in this mode on on Tesla automobiles. They've th- the self-driving car has driven them right into oblivion, right? So I, I saw a speech at MIT maybe a year, year and a half ago, and the speaker was talking about this feature, which was um, you know sort of newly released at the time, just sort of with with admiration and wonder, saying, "Isn't it great that we live in this world?" They didn't even have a press release; they just issued a software update and said, "Hey, now your car can drive itself." Ta-da! And to me, that's horrifying. It's like there's no sense of of looking out for the consumer of safety. It's just it's just like this laboratory tinkerer mindset using the, the lives of, of real people as the test bed. Um, so I, I don't trust the big corporations to, to make the right decisions anyway at a whole different level of abstraction
0: than the vehicles themselves. So I have, I have another clip here from The Guardian about some recent research that divides up Uh, our different attitudes towards robots, whether they be automated cars or uh, factory robots or what have you.
2: According to recent research, people's views about robots can be grouped into six categories, namely the frightening other, the subhuman other, the human substitute, the sentient other, the divine other, and the co-evolutionary path to immortality. The connection is a view about how much like us or unlike us a robot might be. The paper suggests our reaction to robots is similar to our reaction to humans. We trust those closest to us, most like us and with whom we are most familiar. We are more wary of strangers, or in this case, the robot, Doing something we're not used to robots doing.
0: So we talked a little bit about, you know, what I would categorize, per, perhaps correctly, uh, you know, about the sort of less, less than human sort of incompetent service, right? Where the, the car driving mechanism fails or the robot smacks you in the head while you're on the assembly line. Maybe there's another category, the, the incompetent other, right? And I imagine that the divine other might, you know, manifest itself in a, uh, you know, your all knowing smart home, right? Where you're uh, sort of magically given whatever service you need, whether it's beverage when you walk in or the lights dimming or the heat going up at the, the right time and the air conditioner, uh, you know, turn it on when, you know, it gets, gets too hot out. What strikes me as as fascinating about this is that the sort of the the field of of HCI, of human-computer interaction, uh, came about, you know, largely because of us pesky humans needing to be able to operate uh, in conjunction with these marvelous machines. Uh, And there's this whole new section here, which, you know, sort of intersects with service design and, you know emotional design, however you want to frame it, that these robotic products are going to require uh, a level of social design, really, that uh, is completely unprecedented. We've never had this level of technologies, uh, you know, so specialized and so powerful that it it really is starting to rise to the level of of human competence. Uh, and And so now we have this this wide array of problems to solve to get us pesky humans to once again interact with these marvelous machines. So we're pesky and machines are marvelous. Is that right? I, I that that's what I come away with feeling like as if this uh, this emotional design is 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 more a problem of of the human being and, and less the problem with with a robot. But that's just my uh, snarky take on it. I don't think we're actually all that pesky.
1: Yeah. Well, we are selfish, right? And as, as we read and talk about things relating to robots, I'm, I'm, I'm always brought back to the fact that I think the things we do as humans are, are based, I'll argue, 100% on, on selfishness, right? So even if you have someone who is seemingly selfless, like a Mother Teresa type, you know, her selflessness is based on a worldview of, um, you know, giving and community and contribution as as making a better world that she wants to participate in, right? As as sort of an easy example. Um, but the reason I'm I'm mentioning that is, you know, in the in the article that you referenced, as we as we're looking at people's um, perspectives towards robots, like one of the categories it talked about were sex robots, and it was talking about you know married people and using sex robots for affairs in lieu of other humans. And it's said that both men and women um, felt better about using sex robots for that purpose as opposed to humans, but but more so men, right? Um, And not surprising because men are more likely to have affairs. Why? Because men have biological programming that is compelling them to need a certain level of sexual activity or to have sexual activity that aligns with their ego and their self-conception in certain ways. So what I'm saying is there's, you know, we have all these different classifications of robots. Look, the degree to which different people identify robots in different ways, see robots in their in their life, in the future of our society, maps back to their selfish perception of what's good or right for them. The, the people who are in industries where jobs are being taken by robots are going to have one view, whereas people whose... Who are going to make more money because of rots are going to have a different view, whereas people who, um, you know, are are sort of looking forward and thinking about, uh, the, you know, the perpetuation of of humanity and our species uh, long into the future are going to have a different view. So I, I don't know. I'm just I, I'm just always skeptical now. Like whenever whenever there's like, well, yeah, here are the different categories. I mean, they just they just map back to what our selfish framings of the world are, and you know. Unconsciously, so we don't think of ourselves as selfish. We believe things. We, you know, we are a certain person, unique human. But it all maps back to this really, really um, short-sighted, self-interested perspective. Um, you know, I hope robots are less so.
0: Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in The Digital Life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinbo.com. That's G-O-I-N-B-O ocom Dirk? You can follow me on
1: Twitter at dneymeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so
0: much for listening. So that's it for episode 210 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett. And we'll see you next time.